Thanks for listening to our messages from Southbridge Fellowship. For additional resources and information on connecting people to Jesus for life change, visit us online at southbridgefellowship.com. Today is Easter in June, and I've got to orient you to Easter at Southbridge if you've never been here before. We've got a creedal statement that will say, I'll say Jesus is risen. Some of you have been here before. That's awesome. Now, here's how it works all throughout the sermon. If I say it, even if it's an accident, I didn't mean to say it. I'm not queuing you up. You respond. In fact, today's a a response-driven sermon. And just let me say this, too, for our church as a whole. Anytime I'm preaching, you ever want to shout out, hallelujah, praise the Lord, amen. Feel free to do so. Go further. Be careful. I will. You can interact with me as you feel led to do so. But let's practice one time. Jesus is risen. All right, we'll see if you stay on your toes. Today we're talking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is the turning point in all of history. It is the thing, Tim Keller says, it is the hinge on which history turns. And so today we're calling today's message the one thing that changes everything else. When you think about turning points, some of you are sports fans and you know that a lot of times a game or a series will have a turning point of momentum a call that'll happen or a play that's made, and things, everything changes in that moment. If you look at wars, if you're a history buff, every war has some turning point that either started it or that happens throughout it that changes the direction of what takes place. And, just, and you can do that all throughout history. I was thinking this week about the civil rights movement. Rosa Parks, you familiar with that name? On a bus one day, and she's seated in a seat where a white man came up, said she, he wanted the seat, the bus driver told her to get, she refused to get up. And a lot of times we just think that's like, oh, that's a good story. She took a stand. Now, she got arrested for that, got put in jail, and then became a mouthpiece for the civil rights movement, which led to a bus boycott for over a year, partnered up with a guy, some of you might know he's a real young pastor at the time, Martin Luther King Jr. But there's this woman who decided in this moment, I'm not going to be treated subhuman because of the color of my skin. She knew she had equality, that she was still created in the image of God just because she looked different than the guy who was standing there demanding her seat, which was racism. It was a turning point in the civil rights movement to get us closer to where we should be. Now, we're not there yet. It was a turning point. That was a turning point. Think about the Wright brothers. We're in North Carolina. I got to talk about the Wright brothers, right? Because there were other people that were trying to be first in flight. They had more money. They had more education. They had more training, not just financial resources, but lots of resources. But the Wright brothers, when they were on the beaches of Kitty Hawk, first in flight, changed, obviously changed aviation, changed technology. Think about putting a man on the moon. It's a turning point for technology. Think about, I, I was grabbing my iPhone this morning. Do you know that the iPhone came out just 12 years ago? Think of how much the world has changed in 12 years. I was telling, I was telling the first service, there's some people that weren't alive when this happened. So, so, I'm so old, man. Anyway, um, I said, people used to carry these flip phones. And now if you carry a flip phone, people are like, are you a dinosaur? Like, did that come from the 1900s? Like, where is it? And then somebody came up to me who was older than me in the first service and said, you got to tell them about the bag phone. You remember the bag phone? It looked like you were calling in an airstrike in the army if you're carrying that thing around. It's like huge, big antenna on the end of that, that baby. But then, then Steve Jobs comes out in 2007. He introduces the iPhone, which puts the internet and a phone, like if in 2007, if you were tech advanced, you had what was called a BlackBerry. That was basically a typewriter in your pocket. You had to hit the button like three times to get to a letter and the big stylus. Thing. Anyway, now they got this iPod, the easy to use screen. It's got the internet on it. It's also a phone, an iPod. Does anybody remember those? They're not needed anymore because you got an iPhone. 
And now it's expected that if you're some, you know, 15 to 95 years old, it doesn't matter what brand you have, you've got a smart, you're carrying a supercomputer in your pocket. So 2007, that was a turning point in technological history for us. And if you think about your own life, we all have turning points and stages of things that happen, maybe a career break, maybe a bad thing that happened, could be a good thing that happened. I was thinking about my own life. I remember walking into a Mexican restaurant, thinking I was getting a job, ended up getting a wife. Awesome. (laughs) I, I remember... I remember being, going one day, it was a class in seminary, and we're going to a funeral home, and the professor put his arm around me and said, you should think about planting a church. I don't know if I'd be standing here today if that day hadn't happened. Turning point for me. But none like, none like the day that happened for me, which might have been some of your situations where I walked into a room with a bunch of Christians, I didn't believe that stuff, but I was curious about God, and I went into this Bible study, and I started hearing about the turning point in all of human history that God sent his son who put on flesh, became the God-man, who walked on this earth, was tempted in every way that you were tempted this week, got tired, got hungry, knew what it was like to physically grow, physically get older, knew what it was like to grow in wisdom and in stature, but didn't do the one thing that all of us do. He didn't sin. And so then they killed him. Which doesn't make any sense, right? The one guy who doesn't do anything wrong, we murder him, a criminal's cross he's crucified on, but it's because he was dying as a substitute for us. He was dying for my sin. He was dying for your sin. And not only that, he was such a sovereign, awesome dude that he said, they're going to arrest me. Three days later, I'm going to rise from the dead. Then they kill him on a cross. Three days later, guess what happened? Jesus is risen. Some of you are paying attention. And we can know that statement But what about that song we were singing? Is he resurrecting you? Because Jesus, he didn't need to come to earth and die and rise from the dead for his own sake. He did it to resurrect you. That changed my life forever when I heard that information. When it, when it, not just the facts of it, when it grasped my heart. And so I want to ask you this question today. How has the resurrection changed your life? I'm just going to tell you, my hope for you is this, that many of us would wake up to the reality of the resurrection. It would move from just being facts in our mind to something that that grips our heart. Because that changes everything. It changes the way we relate with God. It changes our identity. It changes how we relate with other people. It changes every part of your life. And so we're going to walk through this passage of Scripture in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you have a Bible, you can go ahead and join me there. 1 Corinthians chapter 15. If you don't have a Bible, we'll put the verses on the screen. If you want a Bible, we've got some on the back on the tables as you're walking in. They're free. You can have one. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, as we're walking through this, I want you to ask yourself continually, how has the resurrection actually changed my life. Because there's a lot of people that aren't Christians that don't know it. They believe the resurrection. They believe that Jesus died on the cross. But they just live a moral life that takes some good advice from the Bible. But they don't have new life in Christ. And I hope that's not you when we're done today. Maybe it'll be a turning point for you today. First Corinthians chapter 15, what's happening, we've been doing this series called Letters to RDU. You've seen it with the slides that we've had up. There's pictures on the sides. The reason why we're calling this series that is because there's so many parallels between what's happening at the church in Corinth, this letter that was written 2,000 years ago, and what's happening in the church in RDU. They've got the same struggles, the same questions, the same temptations, the same problems. They're doing the same sins. They're, they're tempted to bow their knee to the false gods of success and sex and sports, and they're doing it, and there's division in the church, and there's sexual immorality, and everybody's just pretending like it's cool. And Paul's writing to them and speaking to them the truth. And and some people think the reason why he waited to chapter 15, almost the end of the letter, to talk about the resurrection is because the wrong thinking about this is what's led to most of the wrong living. And if they get this right, it would influence so many other things. So you and I know that bad thinking leads to bad living. 
I'm going to start reading in verse 12. I'm starting in verse 12 because in verses 1 through 11 we covered on Easter. And verses 1 through 11, the first three, four verses talk about this is the gospel. It's what Christians call the good news about Jesus. It's just a Greek word, euangelion. It means good news. And it's that Jesus came, died, rose from the dead, and is offering you life. If the, if the resurrection's not true, you don't have Christianity. Everything falls apart without the resurrection. Then he talks about in verses 4 through 11 the evidences of the resurrection. He says, if you, don't believe, if you weren't one of the people that saw it, there were 500 people that saw it at once. Go ask them. They were eyewitness accounts. And then Paul talks about his own. Some of the people weren't necessarily followers of Jesus before they saw the resurrected Christ. Paul's one of them. That's one of the things I love about this passage. It's written by a guy who was a skeptic. He was persecuting the church, not planting churches. He's trying to stop the movement of the church, and the resurrected Christ appeared to him. And now he writes about the truth of the resurrection. But they've got some bad thinking about the resurrection. They believe Jesus raised from the dead. But look at verse 12. Verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead... How can some of you say, and so this is what some of them were saying, they believe that Jesus was raised from the dead. How can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead, that they aren't going to be raised from the dead, that people aren't raised from the dead? He said, but if there's no resurrection of the dead, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching, what the church has been founded on, is in vain. It's empty, it's meaningless, and your faith is in vain. That's what that word means. You'll see that theme throughout here, vanity, futility. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ whom he did not raise. If it is true that the dead are not raised, if your bad thinking is true. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Let's make that real clear. He's already said it. says it again in verse 17. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. You don't have an answer for the most important question. Anybody can, what am I going to do with my sin? How am I going to stand before a holy God? I'm still in my sin. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ, people who proclaim to be believers but have died, it's a euphemism for death, fallen asleep, have perished. They're in hell, is what he's saying there. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Here he's obviously talking about the resurrection, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the most important thing that can be talked about, the one thing that changes everything else, but he's addressing their bad thinking. So here's the reality. Most of you know this already. Bad thinking leads to bad living. So bad thinking leads to bad decisions, which then leads to bad results. Reminds me of something I used to say it more. Maybe I've just gotten worn out with my kids. I used to always tell them, bad decisions, bad results. Like, we've experienced that as adults, right? I was thinking about it with my kids. Like, when did I see this? I remember one of my kids going up in her room and drawing on her wall. We didn't paint the wall so they could be a canvas, just FYI, if you're wondering. She's drawing on the wall. Puts her name on the wall. I come upstairs. I see. I said, what are you doing? It was my sister. Your sister wrote your name on the wall in your handwriting. Okay, the good news for me was they're not good at sinning at that stage, okay? And so bad decision. I won't tell you what happened, but it was bad results, okay? Bad results at our house. Just yesterday, what, two days ago, we were cleaning out a room that they play in all the time. I have this chair in it. We flipped the chair upside down. That was a mistake by us because peace in our home was gone at that moment. There was an empty carton of ice cream underneath it. Come on! Are you kidding me? Some of you are like, that makes me feel good about my kids. They just have sandwiches. Like, whatever. Well, so the kid that did it, we've been saying, you're not sleeping well. You've been moody. Like, what bad behavior? Like, we couldn't figure out what was going on. Bad decisions. They were natural consequences. There were other consequences. We weren't cleaning up that mess. Bad results. 
See, bad thinking leads to bad living, which leads to bad results. And what Paul's pointing out to them here in this passage, the Corinthians, you, don't, you want to know why you've got division in the church? It's not just because you're elevating the messenger above the message. You've got some other bad thinking about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's not, you're taking each other to lawsuits, 1 Corinthians chapter 6. You've got a guy shacking up with his, his dad's wife, 1 Corinthians chapter 5. You've got incest happening. You've got bad thinking. It's leading to bad living. And he tells them here the ultimate results of their bad thinking. Because the resurrection, it changes everything. And we're going to see a few different things that it changes today. But the first one's this. Those of you who like to take notes, this is a point for you. Is the resurrection of Jesus Christ changes our identity as followers of Jesus. It gives us, as followers of Jesus, a new identity in Christ. And you think about what all the identity stuff that's out in our culture today. There's all this pressure to have different identities. Did you go to the grocery store? Did you go to grocery store? Does everybody buy their groceries on Amazon now? I'm like the only person? I don't know. But if you go to the grocery store, what you see is like magazines. And you don't just have to be a woman to see this. You see, I've seen magazines of these guys, and I'm like, I don't look like that. My body's not shaped like that guy. And his body isn't either, FYI. That's airbrushed. But it puts this pressure on you to like, I got to conform to what that image looks like. But maybe that's not you. Or you pull out your social media. We're talking with one of our kids about this. They saw something their friends were doing that they weren't doing, and so then they felt jealous. Ever had that happen? Let me tell you just a little secret, just a little like parenting. I know some of you are older than me. I'm not trying to be condescending in any way, but uh, if you have enough friends on Facebook, somebody's always on vacation, okay? And even if your life isn't falling apart and isn't going bad, sometimes you're just doing the daily grind, and you see their vacation. You can't always be on vacation. You've got to work sometimes, Okay? But you get jealous. You see what's happening. Everybody on Facebook's living their best life now. It's like hashtag blessed, like everything. They got a new car over here. Somebody's on an anniversary date over here. Somebody's at the beach over there, and you're like, I'm sitting in this cubicle. <laughs> people don't work. No, they're just like, you have enough people. So then there's all this pressure to like conform and compete and compare. It's identity pressure to be doing what they're doing. And then that brings into like our culture of America. It's all about productivity, success, what you achieve. So how many people will meet each other today in the halls of this church? And I'm not exempt. I probably won't do it today because I just preached about it. But like next week, you can call me out on it. Like we bump into each other and say, hey, I'm Scott. I I am one of the pastors here. No, that's what I do. That's an identity statement when I say, "I I am a police officer. I am a real estate agent. I am a mom. I am. That's what you do. Is that who you are? Because what the Bible says about who you are, it's who you are in Christ. In fact, some of you, and this should change the way you read the Bible if you've never heard this before. Some of you, I challenge you, there's six months left in the year. As you read through the New Testament over the next six months, find all the places in the Bible where it says in Christ, in Him, in Jesus. All of those are identity statements. It's who you are because of your redemption. Now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, it doesn't apply to you. In fact, you're the opposite of these statements. But if you look at what it says about those who are in Christ, it says in 2 Corinthians, which is a great book, our, our women studied it in the spring and the Bible study they were doing it on Tuesday mornings. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that in Christ we're a new creation. The old is gone. All that sin, all, the, all, all is gone. Then you are a new creature. You're actually recreated. The resurrected king is resurrecting me into this new creation. It says in Romans chapter 8, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. There is condemnation for everybody who's not in Christ. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. If you start reading the New Testament with these eyes, it'll change the way you read the Bible. 
Let me read you a statement by a Bible scholar, professor. He's, he's passed away, but great Bible scholar, Anthony Hokema. He says this, once you have your eyes opened to this concept of union with Christ, and that's what it is when he's talking about being in Christ, in Him, in Jesus, it's union with Christ, you will find it almost everywhere in the New Testament. Another Bible guy, John Murray, says this, union with Christ is the central truth of the whole doctrine of salvation. I asked you to think about when we were singing that song, think about your salvation. This is the central truth of it, being in Christ. It's your identity. It's not simply a phase of application of redemption. It underlies every aspect of your redemption. Being in Christ is your identity. But look what Paul says in our passage we read today. If Jesus is not raised from the dead, what does that mean for our identity as followers of Jesus? There's at least five dire consequences. Look at verse 14. The gospel's empty. Preaching is vain. Faith is futile. We are misrepresenting God. See, some people buy into this philosophy, and maybe you were taught it when you were a kid in youth group or Sunday school, that, hey, even if Jesus didn't raise from the dead, just be a Christian. It's the best bet because in case you die and you stand before God, and it's true, it's better that you just like kind of hedge your bets. And it's got the Cosmic Wager by Blaise Pascal. Those of you who want to look it up in a more of a philosophical academic realm, it's like you have more to lose if you're wrong. If you don't follow Jesus, so just follow Jesus. And Paul's going, no, no, no. If you're wrong, you're misrepresenting God. Here's your identity statement. You're a liar. You're what the Bible calls a false teacher. If you want to think, do you think like, oh, God's just cool. You had good intentions. You thought you were right. No, read Ezekiel chapter 13. You want to know what God thinks of false teachers. His wrath is coming against you. You've misrepresented God means you're an enemy of God's. You're a liar. And you say, well, these guys, there's good ethical teaching. These guys said they saw the resurrected Christ. All the apostles saw the resurrected. That is a lie. That's not guys that are misled. And we're propagating that lie. We're misrepresenting Jesus. If he hasn't resurrected and we're claiming that he has, we're liars. Look at uh, in verse 16. Jesus is dead. If Jesus is dead, we're fools. That's our identity. Not in a good way. Verse 18 Everyone who died following Jesus is in hell. Our identity, we're perishing. We're on our way to hell. Verse 19, we're hopeless and to be most pitied. Uh, that's the Bible's way of saying you're a loser. Like, you're the most pitied person in all of humanity. If you claim to follow Christ and Christ is a dead rabbi in the grave still. The worst part, I skipped over, it's verse 17. We're still in sin which means that your identity is that you are condemned if Jesus hasn't risen. But I haven't read to you verse 20. Look at verse 20. But, oh, that's a great contrast word. So you're a loser, you're a liar, you're condemned. If Jesus hasn't raised, you are the most hopeless person in the world, but, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. There you have in the Bible our creedal statement of Easter, Jesus is risen. And if he has risen, is he resurrecting you? Because if he's resurrecting you, he's given you a new identity. Here's the problem in Corinth. They had this new identity. They weren't living according to their identity. They were living according to a false identity. And so what is their identity? The opposite of those five things I just read to you. They should be the most, if we are followers of Jesus Christ, we should be the most hope-filled people in all the world. If Jesus hasn't raised from the dead, we're hopeless. 
If we are followers of Jesus Christ and Jesus is raised from the dead, we are ambassadors for Christ. In Christ, we're his ambassadors, his representatives in this world because we have a life-changing message. If not, we're liars. If, if Jesus has raised from the dead, then those people who've died, who knew Jesus Christ, they're present with the Lord. If not, they're in hell. If Jesus raised from the dead, the greatest one, we are free from our sin. You know what Jesus said to some religious hypocrites in John chapter 8? He said, if the Son sets you free, you are free indeed. I already shared with you the Romans 8 passage, Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. How about this passage from Ephesians chapter 3 and verse 12 in the New International Version says this, in him, there's that phrase, and through faith in him, there it is, we may approach God with freedom and confidence. The problem for the Corinthians was they've been set free from sin, but they had gone back to that bondage. And that's why there's lawsuits. That's why they're putting themselves above, above each other when they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. That's why there's sexual immorality. That's why they're bowing their knee to the God of success rather than the Savior who resurrected from the dead. They're like prisoners who have been set free and then want to get back into They're like the Israelites going, at least when we were in bondage, we had food, onions. Really? Onions? What does the Bible say? The dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool to his folly. And you know, if we live in bondage to sin as followers of Jesus, we're declaring that Jesus is dead because we're not living in the freedom that we've been set free from that condemnation. I was talking to my daughter the other day, and she was asking me to share some, she said, Dad, just share some stories with me about yourself that I don't know. Like, she's heard a lot of my stories before, and there's certain stories, I only have so many, I've only lived so long, right? And so I've shared with her a story that I've shared with our church before. Some of you have been around for a long time, maybe heard this story, but I teased her with it a little bit. I said, honey, I was so bad when I was a kid, they kicked me out of jail. And she's like, you didn't get kicked out of jail. They don't kick people out if you're so bad, they're not going like, to release you to society. I'm like, well, she's kind of smart here, so I'll just kind of tease this out a little bit more. I said, here's the deal. If I can verify that I've been kicked out of jail, then you have to clean the garage. I said, but if I'm wrong, I'll buy you $5 worth of slime. She looked at me like, I'm not messing with $5 for slime. I said, $10 of slime. She kind of brightened up a little bit. I could have said a gazillion dollars worth of slime. I knew I could verify the story. And so I said, how about $100? I don't want $100 worth of slime in my house. But I said, how about $100 worth of slime? She's like, okay. She shakes on it. I said, here's what happened. My senior year of college, I had senioritis. I don't recommend this for you when you're a senior, but it is true of what happened. I said, I I didn't want to learn more. I just wanted to get stuff done. So I'm going through the catalog in college, and I need one more credit hour to graduate. And I'm looking for the easiest credit hour I can possibly find. I don't care what they're talking about in this class. And I found this one class. It was a criminal justice class. I didn't have any other criminal justice credits. It's a criminal justice class that said, if you go stay the night at this jail and write a one-page paper about it, then you get a credit hour. I was like, this is like, this is like robbery. Like, I'm going to get a credit for one night? This is awesome. I signed up, got a bunch of my buddies to sign up. We went to this jail. We're supposed to stay the night there. And it was a new jail, new construction, new guards, new officers there. And they were practicing moving us around. They put us in our bunk to start. We got the orange jumpsuits on. We're sitting, I'm just like, I'll just do some other homework. I'm reading some books. But then they want to move us around everywhere. They moved us to the cafeteria. They pretended like there was a problem. They moved us to this other area. Eventually, we ended up out in the yard. You watched a prison movie before that was out in the yard, like that you're planning their escapes out in the yard. Well, I've seen too many of the Shawshank Redemption, all these movies I've seen. So I'm like out there with the guys, and we're only supposed to spend one night. It's new construction, though. And I look, and I start seeing a way we could get out. 
they didn't put barbed wire on the top of this one fence. And so I said, if we jump that fence, then the next fence that did have barbed wire, I said, there's a gap underneath it in that one spot. And I looked over at some of the officers that were there, and no offense to any of our police officers, but these particular guys didn't look like they could be on American Ninja Warrior, okay? You picking up what I'm putting down? You got it? All right? And so I'm looking, and I'm like, I think we can do this. And we start talking, and we're doing dumb college guys, having dumb college guy conversation. Next thing I know, we're counting down to three, two, one. And we run, and we jump on the fence, me and two of my buddies. And my one buddy, Mike, he's just like shooting up this thing. And I'm looking over, and the guards are running. And I look at my buddy, and we both jump off the fence. But Mike keeps going. (laughs) Mike goes over the top. He looks over. The two guys, they jump on the fence. They didn't make it over the fence, by the way. They jump on the fence. They're like swinging on the fence there. My buddy climbs underneath. He's out. But we were standing right there next to these guys that we're laughing at. They're trying to climb the fence. They politely escorted us. That's not how it happened. They were not happy with us. They grabbed us. They took us to this room. I don't know if he was the warden, but he was the boss of some sort. And he was ticked. Now, the way I saw it was we're helping you out. Like, we're exposing a weakness so you can get better. He didn't see it that way. Okay? I tried to explain that. It didn't go well. He kicked us out of jail, told us, you're not getting credit for this class. We did. But he told us we weren't getting credit for this class. Told us he was kicking us out of here. And then when he kicked us out, taking us out to the car, we turned in our orange jumpsuits, we see our friend Mike. <laughs> You're like, what happened to Mike? No one chased after him. And so he said, I said, what did you do? And he said, well, I'm out there. I got this orange jumpsuit on so I can walk home. <laughs> like... So, so I walked back up to the front of the jail. I started knocking on the door, which I didn't see. But I imagined like, hey, can I get back into jail? Like, I escaped. I win, but I want to come back. But then I think about Christians. And that's like a lot of us. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But we live condemned lives. There's no shame, but, but we're, we live shamed. Like a dog returns to its vomit, so does a fool. Does A lot of us live like a person in an abusive relationship who knows that's bad, but it's what we know, and we keep going back to that sin. Others of us, we're going to see in verse 33, we see that sin is deceptive. We believe the lies of sin. Sin always promises us stuff. Greater pleasure than what God can deliver. A better identity than what God will give you. More of whatever it is that's your idol, and Satan knows exactly what it is. Money, success, whatever it is. And so we go, even though we've been given this new identity by Jesus, we live as though our identity, we're still in, if we're living in sin, we're denying that we're in Christ. And if we're denying that we're in Christ, we're denying the resurrection of Jesus. That he died, not just so you could know a fact and could come and recite a creed or sing a song, but so that you could be free in Christ and the Son sets free, is free indeed, amen? Amen. Jesus is risen. So you can have a new identity, but not just a new identity, but so you can have a bold faith. Look at the next part of this passage. I read to you, uh, that's our second point, by the way, the bold faith. I, I read to you the first part of verse 20. Look at the second part of verse 20. Verse 20 says this, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. We are all grateful for that. Otherwise, we're all hopeless. But then he talks about what that means. The first fruits of those who've fallen asleep. I already told you fallen asleep is a euphemism for death. It's talking about people who've died. What does first fruits mean? First fruits... We see in the Bible, in the Old Testament, what would have to happen if you were going to have a harvest is before you would harvest your whole crop, you'd have to take the first fruits to the priest in the temple. You can read about this in Leviticus chapter 23 and give that as an offering. 
And what would happen is if you had the first fruits were good, it was a sign that the rest of the harvest was going to be a good harvest. So Jesus' resurrection, what's being said here, is not a one-time event in history, never to be repeated again. What's being said here is that that was the beginning of a greater plan. The resurrected king is resurrecting you, and you will ultimately be resurrected when he comes back, which is what we're going to talk about in the next part of the verses. But some of you know your Bible really well. And you're like, wait a minute, Jesus wasn't the first one to raise from the dead. In fact, Jesus himself raised people from the dead. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. The widow's son he raised from the dead. But all those people died again. Jesus was the first one to raise from the dead, never to die again. And that's what he's going to do with you. And this should fuel our faith. Look at what it says next. He's the first fruit. Then he gives some reasoning here. For as by a man, he's talking about Adam, the first man, came death. And by a man, talking about Jesus, has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all shall be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming, so we're talking about Jesus coming back, at his coming, those who belong to Christ, you're going to be raised too. Then comes the end. And so he's laying out the end of time here. When he delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and every power, for he must reign until, so that's what his reign is going to be, vanquishing all of his enemies, until he has put all his enemies under his feet. And we're going to read what the last enemy is in a second, but that's not the only enemy. Think about what this means, those of you who are not in Christ. If you're not for me, you're against me. You're his enemy. Satan's against him. Sin is against him. So he's going to vanquish sin, Satan, deception, all these other worldviews and thoughts, everything that's not for him, that's against him, the last one being death itself. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. And so his resurrection was a sign of what is going to come, that he's the only one that actually has victory over death. Everything else leads to death. The wages of sin is death. There's a way that seems right to man. It leads to death. But he's got victory over death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it's plain that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. That means the Father's not going to be under the Son. But what happens? When all things are subjected to him, Jesus, the Son, then the Son himself will, and he's willingly doing this, will also be subjected to him. It doesn't make the Father greater. The two are one, equal in value, but different in their function, their roles. And the Son himself will also be put subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him that God may be all in all, the sovereign. He is the king, the Father. And the Son willingly submits to that Father. And so think about what we just read. God sent his Son, put on flesh, was born of a virgin, walks this earth, lives and submit. I don't do anything that the Father doesn't tell me. He's in subjection to the Father continually. He became obedient, even obedient to death, even death on a cross. That the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. He's going to put everything in subjection to himself. And then he's going to submit himself then to the Father. And the Father's going to rule and reign as the sovereign king over all and all. And how do we know this is true? Because he defeated death. It was the first fruits that Jesus Christ is risen. You're slowing down on me. Come on. Jesus Christ is risen. And that's the sign that he's going to resurrect you when he comes back at the end and he defeats every enemy, anything that's been difficult, anything that's come against him, any disease, any destruction, there's going to be no sickness, no pain, no crying, no evil, no sin, because it's all been subjected to him. The last one, death. 
Talk about fuel for your faith. Think about the twofold fuel for your faith here. One, I'm following that guy. He defeated death. What do I have to be afraid of? It's the worst thing that can happen to me on this earth. This temporary life that's like a vapor, that's finite, but we're going to live for eternity according to this passage. The worst thing that can happen to me is I suffer and I die. But it's all temporary. And we read in that second letter in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. It's this light and momentary affliction. Some of you are suffering. Some of you are struggling. Some of you had difficult weeks this week. Physical things that have happened. Things that have happened in relationships. All of that stuff that's happened in your life. It's going to be rewarded one day. All the losses you experience here, it's going to impact your life there. This light and momentary affliction that's storing up for me an eternal weight of glory. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. See, how we live here impacts how we, everybody, eternity's not going to be the same for everybody. You know that, right? Like, there's no sin, there's no death, it's going to be great for everybody. It's not going to be the same for everybody. How we live here impacts how we live there. Sort for yourselves treasures in heaven, how we give our money, how we use our time, the suffering we experience. And we're following the guy that defeated all that stuff. We should be bold in our faith. But the second fuel, second fuel, is that you're going to be resurrected. It's not just the object of your faith, Jesus Christ, but it's you, it's the operator of the faith. You are going to be resurrected. That should fuel, that's what fuels, that's what Paul goes on to say here, it's what fuels him. Look at the rest of the, this, this section of this passage, verse 29. Verse 29 is really weird. I'm just going to say that, and nobody knows what it means. So let me read it, and then I'll explain to you what I mean. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Okay. Here's why I'm saying that nobody knows what it means. Not just because I don't know what it means. I don't know what it means either. But nobody else does, and that makes me feel good about me. So listen to this. This has been around, this verse has been around for 2,000 years. There are over 200 different interpretations of this verse. Not a single one has risen to the top as like, this is what Christians believe. It's like all these people argue about. If there's 200 options after 2,000 years, I'm just going to make this declaration. Nobody knows what they're talking about. There's a lot of good options. I'll share with you a couple of the options. One of the options is that it was believed that what was happening in Corinth was that people had trusted Christ, but then they died before they were baptized, and so then believers that were still here would get baptized over top of their grave on their behalf. Okay, I don't know. That's weird. Maybe. We know it didn't do them any spiritual good. Either they were followers of Jesus or they weren't. And so Paul's not saying that it does that. Maybe what it means is he's going back to what he was talking about earlier in the passage and saying, if, if Jesus didn't raise, we're all dead spiritually. So anytime we baptize somebody, we're baptizing dead people, and it's meaningless. It doesn't matter at all. We're going through religious rituals. Maybe what's happening here is that Paul's using the word the way that Jesus uses the word baptism in the Gospels when he looks at his disciples who are arguing about who's the greatest, and he looks them in the eye and says, can you drink the cup that I drink? Can you be baptized with the baptism I'm baptized with? He wasn't talking about his water baptism. He was talking about being crucified on a cross which might be what he's talking about because we're about to talk about suffering and martyrdom because that's what Paul goes on to say. I don't know. But what he's saying is the reason why we do everything we do is because Jesus is risen. Aha, I said it quiet. You were paying attention. Good job. Why are we in danger every hour? He says, I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ, Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. And what he's doing is he's adopting here the secularist viewpoint, the humanist, the materialist, the hedonist viewpoint of life. This is all we got. You only live once. YOLO. 
get what you can get. Enjoy your time now because this is it. Now, that might lead to gluttony. It might not. You might be a good person, and you still think this is all there is. And so you do good here for this place. But the philosophy is eat and drink. This is all there. You only live once. It's all you got. If Jesus is dead, that's how you should live, is what Paul's saying. That's a wise way to live. But if Jesus has risen, then you and I would be utter fools to live that way. Because he's coming back. And how we live here impacts there. That should embolden it. Like if you enjoy suffering and you think Jesus is dead, that's just utter ridiculous. That's foolishness. That's stupidity. But if you believe that you're going to be rewarded for the sacrifice and things you lose here, when you get there, you can embrace suffering. Because God's using it ultimately for your good and his own glory. But if all we have is this life, no way. Reject all suffering. Everything you live for is here and now. The way you use your money, the way you use your time, your health, everything's physical. And listen, if you, but if you get the resurrection of Christ, when it grasps your heart, the beauty, of, not the fact of the resurrection, but the beauty of a resurrected Savior who did that so that you could be resurrected, it leads to a bold faith. What does bold faith look like? Think about the apostles' lives. How about a bold prayer life? They gather in Acts chapter 3 before they're flawed together. They pray. The place is shaken. Think about how weak and tepid many of our prayer lives are. If you ever get to a prayer meeting and every prayer request is about somebody's toe, somebody's sick, somebody's not, everything's physical. It's all here. It's a sign we're not thinking about there. Doesn't mean it's wrong to pray about physical. We should. Elders of the church, anoint with oil, pray for healing. It's in the Bible. We should do that. In fact, some of them don't even do that, by the way. I remember one time preaching at a seminary here in town after I was done preaching, talking about God doing miracles. This woman came up to me. She wasn't a brand new Christian. She'd been a Christian for a long time. Considered a mature believer in her church. So I never even thought to pray that God would heal me of my cancer. I was like, I, I was like, he raises dead people. Like, at least ask. James 4 says you don't have because you don't ask. You should pray bold prayers. But they shouldn't just be about this place. You should pray for the souls of lost people. If we really believe that there is an afterlife and the people who know this information and believe and trust Jesus as the all in all, as the sovereign king, the resurrected king, is going to resurrect us, but not them, because he puts every enemy under his feet. They're perishing on their way to hell, and we should be praying for them, pleading for them, and sharing with them. Think about them. Not just bold prayers, bold proclamation of the gospel. You want to know what a life of faith looks like? Take risks for faith. Share the gospel with people. Let me read you an email I got this week. A member of our church, her name's Karen been going to church here for a while. Back in 2012, I started sharing with our church. If you're a member of this church, this is your home church, you want everybody to have at least one person you're sharing the gospel with. Like, no, the Bible says to go to all the nations, okay? So we set the bar really, we went lower than the Bible because we knew most people weren't sharing the gospel. We said, just start praying for people to trust Christ. Share the gospel with them. We still ask you to do that, but here's what she wrote. Hi, Scott. Over five years ago, you challenged me slash us as a church body to choose our one. I began praying for my nephew, David. I wrote my prayer on a note card with the date. It, rem it remained on my wall where I could see it each day. Through a series of events orchestrated by God, I was able to establish a deeper relationship with him. He remained closed to the need for God. Slowly, over time, which is often how it happens through relationship, David became more open. In April, and she put in front of these, Easter Sunday, I sent him a, the note card with my prayer for him on it. He accepted Christ three weeks ago. Today, he and his wife were baptized. 
Praise the Lord. You can give the Lord a hand. But think about what that was like for Karen. So Karen, she's got a family member, so she can see this person again. It's not like, hey, drop the gospel in, peace out, I'm out of here. It's like, I'm gonna, we have a relationship. This could introduce a lot of tension in our relationship because you're not even open to God. But she starts praying. She's boldly sharing. She even shares her prayers for him. She cares for his soul. Bold faith is bold with the gospel. But it's not just bold in what you do. It's bold, it's bold in when you receive word from the Lord, what he wants you to do with you. It's bold in obedience. We have one guy who's going to get baptized today. His name is Mike Grubb. Mike told me I could share this with you. Mike is a guy, he came to our church a couple times, like Easter, Christmas type thing, and every once in a while. And one day he felt led about five weeks ago to come to church. Didn't know why. And the invitation came, and it was like we had elders like we'll do at the end of the service today. Elders up in the front, elders' wives. And so if you want to come forward, come forward. He came forward, and he said, I don't even know why I'm coming forward. God was just stirring in his heart. And he prayed to receive Christ that day. And then he... He's, you know, learning the Bible as a new Christian. He sees that, oh, if, as, a new, as a Christian, I'm supposed to get baptized? Well, I'm going to get baptized. That's bold obedience for a new believer, just so you know. You know? Yeah, for sure. Give the Lord a hand. That's a God working in his heart. And that doesn't stop as a new believer. As we continue to read the Bible, we continue to see areas of our life. God's gracious. He doesn't show us everything at once. He starts pointing out, hey, you need to... You need to be more patient, slower to anger, more like me, more abounding in love, greater in grace, more mercy. Stop coveting. Start, stop, hey, this sexual morality, you didn't think it's a big deal. It is a big deal. And, and the way that you use your tongue, you're hurting other people. And he continually shows us stuff. And bold faith leads to bold obedience so that when he says something, he's our sovereign. We don't have to think to ourselves, oh, but if I do that, then that. He's sovereign over all of history. Let him deal with the results. You obey the commands. But what if it leads to persecution? You know, that's the greatest evidence to me of the apostles that they really believed this is that they died for it. Like we talk about in Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches, 3,000 people trust Christ. We don't want to talk about Acts chapter 4 and 5. Acts chapter 4 and 5, they get flogged. Have you seen the Passion of the Christ, what a flogging looks like? They get flogged. Then they go out and they preach some more about the resurrection of Jesus. And not only that, but then the church is growing fast. 3,000 people in Acts chapter 2. Read Acts chapter 4. They're up to 5,000 people. Or Acts chapter 5, 5,000 people. Get to Acts chapter 6, and they can't even, they got great ushers. They're counting 5,000 people, right? All right, give our ushers a hand. We're thankful for them. Praise the Lord. In Acts chapter 6, they can't count those people. Since there's such a great multitude, they couldn't count the people anymore. So these are people that were alive when Jesus was killed. And they're risking their lives to be a part of the church, it wasn't like to get a, a job uh, raise or to, to get elected to office, okay, like we oftentimes do in the South with Christianity. We're using it for our own personal benefit. They're risking their lives, not for a dead rabbi. That's, that's the evidence of the resurrection. You want evidence of the resurrection? There's academic evidence, but look at the lives that were changed. That's bold faith and bold generosity that they gave. They would give. Like if you want to know if you're living for this world, look at your money. If your money's all in this place and it's not given to causes that impact people for eternity, then you're, you're proclaiming with your money that Jesus is dead and still in the tomb. Let me tell you something. I was at the tomb in January. It's empty. And so our time and our money and our obedience and our proclamation and our prayer should reflect that. If not, look at what he says next. Start our third point. You must wake up to the reality of the resurrection. Verse 33 says this. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. And all the parents said, amen. Sounds like something your mom would tell you, doesn't it? 
Think about these kids you're hanging out with. Don't be hanging out with these kids. They're bad kids. Hey, the bad company. This is actually a quote from a Greek poet. Paul didn't make this up. It was kind of a known proverbial truth that all the people there would have accepted. But the way he's using it in our context, the bad company are people who live like this world is all there is. I'm not talking about rapists, drunkards. Like that, yeah, that's true too. But in our context, so you got people who live like this world, YOLO, you only live once, eat and drink, that's your thing. Bad company corrupts good character. Have friends that are living in light of the resurrection. Look what he says. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Wake up, your drunken stupor. I was driving this week with one of my girls over by uh, Triangle Town Center Mall. Are you familiar with that area off Capitol Boulevard? I'm pulling in, and we're going to make a left turn to go down. I think it's Old Wake Forest Drive, and there's a McDonald's on the corner there. Those of you who've seen that, it's a big, like, I don't know, it's like a six-lane road or something. There's a bunch of lanes there. And I'm about to turn left, going across. I see these three guys standing on the side of the road, outside of the McDonald's, like right at the corner of the road. I didn't think much of it. Drove past them, and I look at my daughter. Her eyes are like saucers. They're like huge. What's wrong, honey? I said, those guys are robbing that guy. I looked at my rearview mirror, and I saw there's one guy who was tall. He had a red bandana on his head. And he was leaning into the other guy, but his arms were being restrained by that guy. And then the other dude was going through his pockets. And I was like, they are robbing that guy. Like, you're right. Like, usually it's like, oh, that's not what's happening. But it's like, yeah, you're robbing. I called 911. We're driving past him. We're already past him. I'm going to pull up with my little kid in the car. And so call 911. Hey, I think I'm seeing this guy getting mugged. What do you see? What was it? I give the description of the people, where we were at, all that kind of stuff. It's happening right now. Like, send somebody over here. And they said, was the tall guy wearing a red bandana? I said, yeah, he was. We already got a call about that guy. He's incredibly drunk. Those people might be mugging him, she said, but they might be helping him. But we'll send some police. I circled back around. The police were there. The ambulance was there. I don't know. But then it got me thinking about the state of the church. And a lot of times as Christians, we'll talk about like John chapter 10 and verse 10. Jesus came that we could have the abundant life. He came that he could have life and have it to the fullest. But Satan, our enemy, came to steal, kill, and destroy. Some of us think we're not experiencing the abundant life because Satan's robbing us of that. I think we give Satan too much credit a lot of the time. And many of us are drunk. No, I'm not drunk. I don't, I don't touch alcohol. I'm Baptist. I'm glad you're here. Um, <laughs> Jesus had wine. But anyway, it goes on things. I'm not talking about drunk on alcohol. I'm saying we're intoxicated with this world. We've become drunk to our pursuits of producing stuff, of succeeding, of achievement, of success. We become intoxicated with our passion for popularity. We become intoxicated with our desire for pleasure that we're going to get from sin. And we become deceived. Verse 33, do not be deceived. We're just, sin always promises you a lie. It's going to deliver to you something. You'll be like God. Genesis 3 all over again. And God's going, wake up. Like you're living as, you're saying you're Christians and you're like in this comfort zone and you're, you're like on cruise control, just cruising down the road, you fall asleep at the wheel and you're, there's other people that are being harmed by you living your Christian life this way. Wake up! It's like he says to the church in Sardis in, in Revelation chapter 3, he says this, I know your works, you have the reputation of being alive, but you're dead. Verse 2, wake up! Strengthen what remains and is about to die. I found not your works complete in the sight of my God. Remember then what you received. Remember when you were baptized? Remember when you trusted Christ and heard? Keep it and repent. Turn back to that, those of you who've gotten off track. If you will not wake up, not Satan will come, I will come like a thief. 
And you will not know at what hour I will come against you. Remember, he puts every enemy. If you're not for him, you're against him. Every enemy under his feet. He's going, wake up. The wake up call is to you if you didn't know your identity in Christ and you're living out a false identity. The wake up call is if you're living this casual, comfortable faith. And he said, this is a bold faith. I'm coming back for you. Do you need to wake up? 